Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Galatians, and I'd love to just start to dive right into it. We'll bring context and I'll link it to what God was doing with us last week with Rory Dyer. But the book of Galatians, just very quickly, for because I'm long winded, so I'm going to get straight into the text. Is that okay? Yeah. Everyone alright? Good. So, Paul wrote the book of Galatians. Galatians is a six chapter letter that's found in the New Testament. And this man, Paul, wrote this book to this church that he had started many years before in the province of Galatia. And they were Gentile Christians who lived there. So these were Gentiles, people who were not Jewish by birth. So by very nature, they were outside of the the, the covenant family of God. They're they're, they're outsiders looking in on the promises of God. But Paul arrives and says, actually, because of this man named Jesus, you that was outside, gets to be inside. This is the good news, and they received this good news of Jesus Christ with such joy, and they responded with faith, and they arrived with such freedom in their hearts. this, This church was formed out of nothing. An exciting moment as this church was birthed. And uh, they embraced this new freedom. And this church was a, a favorite church of Paul. He loved this church because they were just full of joy and full of life. But then this group of people came behind them, behind Paul, called the Judaizers. And these were Jewish Christians who, who had received Jesus, but they, but they were false brothers. They, were, they came there, they wanted to pull back the work that God was doing with these people. So they arrived after Paul. Paul had preached, this church had formed, he had moved on. And these other guys called the Judaizers came and said, Listen, we hear that you have received Jesus. And they said, that's a great starting point. And then they started to proceed to tell them that actually, you know what, Jesus is a good starting point. But for you to move into full freedom, the proper thing that you're supposed to do, is you actually have to start picking up some of the Jewish customs and laws. So they said, guys, sorry, circumcision's back on the table. They start to say, I got one little giggle there, a little nervous. And, uh, don't worry, we won't be doing that at length this weekend. But uh, they said, circumcision on the table, Jewish festivals, high days and holidays. You have to follow the Jewish ways, the Mosaic law. You have to do these things. Jesus is good, but he's not the full picture. You've got to add on a few extras to come into this thing. Basically answering the question, how Jewish does someone have to be to become a Christian? So Paul then hears this, and the Gentiles are obviously a little bit in a panic, because they're like, we, we, we want to be in the freedom, we want the full story. So they start adding on to their simple faith in Jesus, which had come with joy and freedom. They start trying to obey the Jewish rule and, and, and become Gentile Jews, and it's just a strange amalgamation, and, and their joy started to seep away as they start to come under bondage and legalism. And they get to this moment where Paul hears about this, and Paul writes this letter of Galatians, sixth chapter letter. And this is no pen pal letter. This is no light and fluffy letter. If you read it, the tone of it is, Paul is angry. Not at the Galatians, but but actually he's angry at these guys who come in and steal their freedom. And would taint the gospel. So taint the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul in this letter is using everything in his arsenal. And I use the word arsenal lightly because they won the FA Cup last night. (laughs) (sighs) Nothing is impossible with God, eh? Anyway. Benny is very happy today. It's nice to see you, Benny. But he used everything in his, in his arsenal to, to attack this point. And, and if you read the book of Galatians, chapter 1 to chapter 4, he is using his experience, he's using his story, he's using theology, he's using Jewish illustrations, everything under the sun, to make sure they get the point that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And Paul is like a dog with a bone, he won't relent in this. 
Six chapters, he's got one point and one point only, and he's going to ram it home from every angle to make sure they get the point. He says, you add anything to it, you take anything away from it, you strip this thing of the gospel of his power and his true freedom. Paul is going on, and we, we're just covering some ground just to remind us where we're at. He paints us two pictures in this book. He says there's two errors that people tend to fall in. This is true for them, to, true for us today as it was for them all those years back. He said there's the one error, the, the cage of legalism. And you, you think you've got Jesus, but then you, you pull over onto the left and you, and you enter this cage. And you think, you know, Jesus is good, but I want to I want to keep toe the line. I want to follow hard and be careful. I want to keep it safe. I want to prove that I'm a Christian. I've got to prove it, you know. I want to make sure that my life looks like I, what I say I believe. And, and, it's, and it's a fine line, and you, but before you know it, you're in a cage of legalism. On the other side, is a thing called a swamp of licentiousness. Where you actually go, Jesus is great and he's so good. So if he's forgiven me already, that means I can do whatever I want. Fine line, because on both ends, there's truth. But it's a fine line before you are in the cage of legalism that parades his freedom, but it's actually a bondage prayer. And a fine line before you're in the swamp and you're just saying, it's actually, I'm free, but it's actually anarchy. And both forms will end up crushing your soul and losing you your joy and your freedom. I want to say it this way, the kid who's addicted to Sunday school and the kid who's addicted to heroin need the same gospel. They need the same Jesus to set them free. Let me tell you, there was two men last week. We were at, uh, at the service last week celebrating Milton's one year and at the end of the service, Rory Dye gets up and he makes it a call for people to respond to the gospel. And I hear people standing and God is doing an amazing thing. And I look over my own shoulder and at the back... Right, as, I, as you face the stage, there was one man who stood up. And uh, I know this man's story, he's a multi-millionaire. A multi-millionaire. And uh, he's a man who's, who's actually a self-made man. He's, he comes from, didn't come from money, but he's made a business, made a success out of himself. And his world has just got bigger and bigger. But as he's gone on, he hasn't followed the Lord. And his family have been praying for him for years. Praying by name, God, would you bring him to Jesus? But this man's like, you know what? I've got it all together. My life is in order. I'm, I'm okay. I don't need that thing. I don't need religious crutches. But that man stood up that Sunday with tears running down his eyes. Next to him. Right next to him. Not for, I don't believe by coincidence. I believe God orchestrated. Because this is, I don't think the person he'll usually choose to sit next to. Next to him is a man that I know who's been walking a drug addicted road. He's been in a rehab for the last best part of the last year. And he's been coming to church. And can I tell you, his family have given up on him. His family said, you've done it once too often. Once, two, three times we can handle. But four, five, you're on your own, buddy. His family have washed their hands of him. This is the man that's given into the swamp. The man who just said, actually, I, there's no hope for me. But last week, Sunday, a multi-millionaire standing next to a drug addict. We're both standing weeping, receiving the love of Jesus. And I felt that day, if you are, I said, which one's the rich one, which one's the drug addict? I don't think any of us would be able to tell the difference. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, he, what, heaven didn't see any difference either. Yeah. Heaven didn't say, multi-millionaire, drug addict, he didn't say, son, son, yeah. welcome home. Yeah. We need to be set free from the cage and the swamp. To walk into free, turtle and true freedom. Let me tell you, this is, for us today, I want to labor this term, I'm going to help us, because I really believe we're going to do work, and I I really trust that God's going to do something. Because this for us, this gospel, is the starting point, but also the means to us walking it out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the starting point, 
but also the means. What happened in Galatians, they said it's the starting point. But then you've got to have to do a few things. But Paul said, no, no, no. Galatians is the starting point, the, the middle and the end of this whole story. It's Jesus plus nothing every step of the way. And this is how he does it. Paul is saying this. In chapter 1 to chapter 4, he's laying down gospel truth. He's laying down layer upon layer of gospel truth about who Jesus Christ is. And this Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Chapter 1 to chapter 4. In chapter 5 comes a little breather where he starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Now what the church loves to do is to get that list and make it a thing, a list of things we must do. When Paul goes, never! It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Because this is how he works. He says, if you get gospel truth, it will lead to, by default, gospel fruit. Gospel truths always lead to gospel fruits. What happens in church is we say, show me your fruits, and then I'll, then, I'll, then I'll see what you believe. When, when the gospel says, no, tell me what you believe, and then I'll show you how you behave. Because this is the problem for us. The root determines the fruit. Too many Christians are getting tired, and are faking it, and are being called hypocrites. Why? Because we're, too, we're stressing and straining, working how we're going to push our fruit. You're going to pull a muscle. It's an aged old story, but fruit, if, you, if you're having to work for fruit to come out in, that means something's wrong with your root system. An apple tree doesn't have to think again and again, I've got to produce apples. Come on, apple tree. You can do it. You'll be told you're an apple. You must produce apples. No, it's root system determines fruit comes. And this is what Paul's trying to get into the hearts of the believers in Galatia, but also to us today, that if we get the root the fruit will start to manifest dramatically. I want to put this into us today because it's so profound. Because the man named Jesus Christ came and lived on this earth. And in Luke chapter 3, there's a story where Jesus, before he had done anything else, he had done nothing. He had turned over waters into wine. He had done, done none of that walking on water trick. He had done nothing of the David Blaine ilk that would have caught anybody's attention. He had done nothing miraculous. But in Luke chapter 3, as soon as he's been baptized, he comes out the water and a voice from heaven, his father's voice, echoes over his life, declaring, this is my son, whom I love, and I'm well pleased. He had done nothing. In a Jewish culture, the pleasure of the father was never given until the son had proved his manhood. This father steps out of heaven and says, my boy, I love him, and I'm well pleased with him. We, we labeled this in chapter 1. We said there's three trades. We're going to make the trade from but when God, but when I to but when God. We have to make the trade, but when I, I found God to, but God found me. Make the trade from our work for God's pleasure, but work from God's pleasure. In this one statement here, Jesus, it's exactly, it was not Jesus to heaven, it was heaven to earth. The Father said, but when I spoke over God, over Jesus, the Father said that it's actually not, he, he found, he called Jesus. Jesus wasn't calling on the Father. And finally, the Father said, I'm pleased with you before you've done anything else. So Jesus' ministry kicks off from the pleasure of God. Yeah. Not working for it, not waiting, saying, I'll see how you do, Jesus, then we'll talk in three years at your performance review. No, he worked from pleasure. But this is so important. Why? Because in Luke chapter 4, the very next chapter, Straight after these words have echoed out of the Father's mouth into Jesus' life, Jesus goes into the desert, and who arrives there is a man named Satan, the accuser, and the first thing out of Satan's mouth is this. He says, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Jesus just heard from his Father, this is my Son. The very next moment under pressure, prove it. If you are the Son, prove it. 
And that accusation is the same accusation that Satan has used again and again and is using in your life and my life. And he's desperately for us to respond in that way and panicking, going, I've got to prove it, so I've got to get in the cage and toe the line. Or, I can't prove it, I don't know, I'm a fraud. And we slip into the swamp of guilt, licentiousness, and apathy because we feel we can't do it. And that's why I believe this after this morning. What I'm coming into and I'm trying to put into heart. Last week Rory is calling sons and daughters, the father out of God. But if it's not backed up with the legal uh, papers of heaven, it'll just leave us with a woman fuzzy, but when the accuser comes, we won't know how to stand. And I want to help us do that this morning. So, this morning I'm going to ask us very quickly if we can stand to our feet. We're going to read scripture, a whole chapter, chapter 2. Can you believe it? They read the Bible here in church. 1 person was excited <laughs> but let's read it together take it away chapter 2 verse 1 I'm going to read it but I ask you open your hearts up as we read this morning then 14 years later I went back to Jerusalem again this is Paul talking this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too I went there because God revealed to me that I should go while I was there I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I've been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to perspire us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give it to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God had no favorites. <coughs> Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews, also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles, while they continued to work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, and we, which I have always been eager to do. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But then afterward, when some friends of James came, Jewish men, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from his people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in... One more back. Good quick, it's okay. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ. Not because we have obeyed the law. 
For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. What that mean? Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner. If I rebuild the old system of law, I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you convince us that we have been fully, freely and forever justified by your work on the cross. I say, Jesus, would you flood our feeble, doubting, nervous hearts with the fullness of the confidence of heaven, where all your promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, for the privilege that I get to boast of none other but Jesus Christ this morning. Open our hearts to receive the fullness of this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. Why don't you take a seat? Thank you so much. Quickly, some background on that text. The, the main chunk of it, where as Paul starts out work some theology there, is the reason he's doing this is there's a man named Peter, you might know from the, the gospel stories, the man who walked with Jesus, who had seen Jesus, who had, had, had fallen, but then had been restored, and a man who was convinced of Jesus plus nothing. Peter was a man who, who knew his failings and actually abandoned that, and actually, I'm, I'm holding on to Jesus alone. But what happens is Peter, who is also a man that was the, the first man ever to preach to Gentiles, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, he, was a, he went and preached to a Roman soldier called, called Cornelius, and Cornelius received Jesus. So Peter knows that the gospel is for the whole world. He knows Jesus. He's in the, on the story that there's, there's no divide, no cultural divide. There's nothing separating people from the gospel except their sin. Nothing. There's no other thing that needs to be added. It's just Jesus is the only answer. He knows this. But he arrives and he's heard that the Gentiles are being saved and he's so thrilled that he's having meals with them. They're, they're having a meal. They, he actually has bought his credit cards. He says, this is on me. And he's paying and he loves it. And Nando's is first flowing. The hot pot's really good value these days. And they're, they're eating it together. And they're enjoying this meal. And then well, who walks in? Brothers from James, some of the, the big the big kahunas, the guys who, the Jewish guys, the Jewish Jews come. And they they go looking at this table a bit squirt like, oh Peter, what are you doing? Slumming it at that table with those guys. Hey? The pork eaters over there. You know? And then, and Peter gets a little bit nervous and he's like, uh, uh, guys, I'll be back, you know? And he leaves the, the uncool table and goes and hangs out with the Jews and, and doesn't return back to the table. And it's obvious to everyone what Peter is doing. It's obvious to everyone that this is not just a social old thing. This is Peter's now suddenly becoming a bit nervous and ashamed of these guys. And actually by him removing himself from the table, going back to the Jewish guys, and, and nervously doing so, he is saying, you guys are, yeah, you guys have got Jesus, but you don't have the full picture. The Jewish Jews are the guys who've got the full picture. You've got second class status. There's something by his nature, he knows it by truth, but by his actions he's saying that you guys should probably add something to your faith to get to where we are. And Paul is furious at this. So much so that Paul rebukes openly Peter, a man that walked on water. He said, Peter, this is not right. This is, he wasn't coming at Peter because Peter had gone and had a debaucherous night out drinking. He didn't come rebuke Peter because Peter now was doing some gambling on the side. You know? 
with the church kitty. No, no, no. He rebukes them because he says, you are showing, you're, you're distorting the gospel. This is the thing that riled Paul up. And Paul is coming, and he's bringing order to us out of this text. Bringing order, and what is the gospel? What does it mean to be fully justified by Jesus alone? There's a story. A man in our church and his wife, Quinta and Louise, they've adopted a little baby girl called Libby. Quinta is a white man, Louise is a cousin lady, Libby is a black girl. And they've adopted this beautiful girl to their family. And it's an amazing thing, and from day one, from the moment she arrived home, the fridge is hers. She can go in and get anything from the fridge. The, the remote is hers, the home is hers, she is a part of the family. This is your brother, this is your sister, welcome home. She has the run of the house, she is the daughter. Beautiful. But here's the thing, as she grows up, as she goes to school, there's going to be some starts having some voices are going to come and say, hey, your dad's white, you're black. What happened there? Little kids, maybe innocently, with accusing, and, and something will get in her heart, she goes, no, no, I, I, I'm his daughter though. No, you're, you're not really his daughter, you must get something different about you. Prove it, you know. And it's accusations that, that all adopted kids go, have to go through and wrestle this journey. But there's something that's amazing here. That actually, the fear of being removed from the family, or fear of having to go back to a former life, is God, not because Quinton says, I love you and my, you're my daughter, but actually because Quinton has gone to the Justice Department, and he's got the papers that have changed her name legally, and her name is going to become Libby Hawes, her name, her new surname. The old is gone, she gets a new surname. So if anyone ever does come, and maybe the accuser will come and say, are oh, you really my daughter? She won't just have to, experience, uh, to, to speak from experience. Hey, uh, well, I lived at their house. They've told me they're the daughter. I think I'm their daughter. They can come a time, she can say, Dad, am I your daughter? He goes, well, that's what the legal papers say. Legally, you're mine. No one can take you away from me. And here's the amazing thing, that what Paul is bringing out here today, he's bringing out a doctrine. That has been one of the most fundamentally divisive doctrines in the whole history of the church. It's called the doctrine of justification. And Paul is now nailing it. From verse 16, if you're going to study this passage onwards, he is nailing this doctrine of justification as firmly and as strongly as you could ever imagine. In the book of Galatians, Moses passage here, and the book of Romans is where Paul is his poster work, his hard, hard work where he defines this doctrine to put security in the hearts of believers. And I want to outwork that today. So very quickly, we're going to do work. You want to write that? Yeah. Give me a word. Thank you, I appreciate that. Really, really cool. So very quickly, justification, before we get to these three points that help us work it out. The legal papers. Justification is the legal act of God in which our sin is forgiven, removed, and we are declared as righteous. Justification is the legal act of God in which our sin is forgiven, removed, and we are declared as righteous. It's judicial, it's legal, and it's irrevocable. This is the work of God that was done not in the not in just the fuzzies, happy-go-lucky, hey, I love you guys, man. A father that says, hey, you're awesome. That is the father, but here's the incredible thing. He wasn't just in a moment with warm feelings when you, he looked at you and said, hey, you look so good today, you're really doing well. I love you, boy. I love you, my girl. Not just in that moment, he does love us in that way. But he went even one step further. He, that in the courtroom of heaven, he signed and sealed the papers forever, declaring that you are my son and my daughter. So that one day when the accuser comes, it's not just on how I'm feeling, but there's a paper that declared it. Yeah. That's what we have to understand today to get deep into our hearts. So everyone alright with that? Yeah. Good. 
three ways justification works. Number one will be on the screen, and I'm going to help us work this out. This is what Jesus does. Are you ready for some good news? Oh, I don't think you guys are ready. I'm ready for some good news. This is going to be excited this weekend. Number one is that God fully justifies us. We are fully justified. In Jesus Christ, we are fully justified. What does justification mean? It means this. Simply, it's just as if you had never seen the sin. Justification. Just as if you had never sinned. Did you know, because of Jesus, that your past, your present, and your future sins are forgiven? Scandalous. Let me say that again. Your past, that massive thing that haunts you, that thing that you think is just so terrible that you did, that you'll never share with anybody, that, that secret shame that you wish you could go and redo, that thing and all the other things around it, forgiven. That addiction that you are battling with day in and day out, that, that anger, that frustration, that attitude that you wish you could overcome, but you keep falling at the same hurdle, that present addiction that you're wrestling with, do you know in Jesus is fully forgiven? There's a good one. Your future sins, the ones that you are yet to even have had the creativity to make up in your head, <laughs> the ones that, that future Gabe will do, have been forgiven in Jesus. Scandalous! But it's scripture. Let me tell you this this morning that all has been forgiven. How do I know this? In Romans 8, verse 1, there comes a word that says this therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See that word, there is no condemnation. Condemnation is the antithesis of justification. Condemnation is the legal right to bring guilt and shame. The legal right to give a penalty for the wrong you've done. The legal right. But this is what happens. Is that Jesus writes on the story says, The legal right has been done away with for your past, present and future. Because I have justified you fully. Not partially. Not just, and I haven't just put a down payment and we'll see how we go. I haven't done, just put a little bit here for that sin. But oh, there's a couple ones I'm not too sure my blood can cover. No, no. He is fully, past, present, and future tense, forgiven us, and so much so that Apostle Paul in Romans 8 gets to the, the height of his arguments, and he says this boastfully in chapter 8, verse 33, he says, Who then can bring a charge against us? And I can imagine Paul smiling, going this, with such excitement when he has declared the freedom that Jesus brings, he says, Who can bring a charge? Anyone. He says, Anyone can walk into my story from my past and, and put a finger at me, and I go, But it's forgiven. Anyone can point and say, yeah, but look at the thing you're battling with. Yeah, but it's forgiven. Anything one can tell me, but you don't know what you're going to do in the future. Yeah, but it's already forgiven. By the work of Jesus. Here's the amazing thing, though. Do you know that Satan is a legalist? He's a legalist. Satan knows the law. That's how he can bring guilt and shame. He knows that. So much so that in Luke 4, when he came and he tempted Jesus, he said, if you are the Son of God, Satan used Scripture against Jesus, trying to trick Jesus into this thing. To, to trick Jesus into the cage or into the swamp. <coughs> Satan is a legalist. And that's why I love my Jesus. Because my Jesus came and do you know what? Israel, the nation, had been given all the mosaic, mosaic laws. Why? To keep them alive, to keep them safe, to keep them moving. But it's always there to reveal a Savior, one Jesus. That's why they're all still leaning forward for a Messiah who will one day come. And Jesus came... But Jesus didn't just come as Jesus, a representative of God. Do you know what he also came? Jesus came to a nation who had failed, Israel, who had failed. 
of the keeping, the covenant keeping promises of God. They failed. They did not meet the grade on the Lord. But Jesus came, and do what the scripture tells us, is that Jesus is our true Israelite. Jesus is the one true Jew who ever has kept the law perfectly. Let me tell you this. In Matthew chapter 1, the book of Matthew, Jesus is described as the, the, from the line of Abraham. And, and if you go look at that li- the lineage of Jesus, the whole purpose of Matthew doing that is to show that Jesus comes from a Jewish line. Yeah. All the way back to Abraham. Chapter 2 is this amazing thing that Jesus, just like the nation of Israel, in chapter 2, Jesus of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2 goes down to Egypt. Just like the nation of Israel went into Egypt. In chapter 3, Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism. Just like the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and then went through the waters of the Red Sea. Chapter 4, Jesus comes to this amazing moment. That we see that Jesus goes after his waters of baptism. What happens to you? He goes into the wilderness. Just like the nation of Israel came out of the waters of the Red Sea, went into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus came for 40 days. They walked around, they walked around, they did, but Jesus overcame in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse chapter 7, Jesus ascends the mountain of the Lord, and what did he do up there on the, ser- on the mount? He gives a sermon. He says, hey, you have heard us yet, but I'm going to tell you the real truth. He gives his reading of the law when Moses went up the mountain and gave the Ten Commandments but the Lord dead. It goes on and on and on all the way. You can follow all the way that Jesus is the true Israelite, the only one who performed perfectly and did exactly where the Israelites failed, he came and brought restitution. Because he knows Satan's a legalist. And Jesus performed perfectly. And by Jesus, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly because he knew we were going to fail. So much so that when Jesus died, Pontius Pilate even said, I find a fault in him. I find a fault in him. A man who was flawless in his way that he did this. And here's the amazing thing for you and I today. Is that because of this, because of this understanding that Jesus' obedience was perfect... His obedience legally paid for our full justification. Past, present, and future. Because here's the thing. In chapter, verse 16 of chapter 2 of Galatians. If you go home and you read it there. In our text, our Bibles almost these days don't do it justice. There's three times it says that we, we, are, we are justified by our faith in Christ. See the three times. If you go look in the Greek, it's not the same phrase three times. It's okay. It's, it's not a bad translation. It's just not the full translation. The proper translation says we are saved, we are, we are justified. Why? By the faithfulness of Christ. Not our faith in Christ, that's okay. But a proper reading is we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Because here's the problem. Sometimes then we even turn our faith into a word. If I just believe hard enough, then Tinkerbell will live. No, no, he's not Tinkerbell. He's Almighty God. He says, I have saved you, not by your faith, but by my faithfulness. So you just need to have a little bit of faith in my faithfulness. If you can trust in my faithfulness of Jesus, and Jesus was faithful to the end. He said, I did not come to remove the law, I came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle, the past, the present, the future, because the law has future implications, Jesus fulfilled the future implications in himself. Why? So he could fully justify our past, present, and future sins. Come on! Jesus. That's good. Secondly, today, massive content we're working through at a rapid pace, but I believe it's important. Is God doesn't just fully justify us, He freely justifies us. I don't know about you, but whenever I get a deal that's too good to be true, I'm like, what's the cash? No, this guy's. Mr. Phillips, you have won a holiday. That's awesome. Thank you. You just need to come in for an hour presentation. Ah, oh, you guys, I know you guys. I know you. 
What's the catch? We've become a, a cynical people. But here is the, the good news of the gospel. Is this good news that is given is not good advice. Yeah. It's not called the good advice of Jesus. Here's some helpful tips to make yourself a little bit better. Go to church, the good thing. Now, not bad things, but he's actually saying it's called the good news, the good proclamation of what has already been done for you. And actually at the bottom of it, as you look hard at it, there's no terms and conditions at the bottom. There's no terms and conditions applied. There's no little fine print at the bottom. So why is this? Because actually, he has not just fully justified us. He hasn't just forgiven our sins. He has the great news. The Bible says he's removed them. He's removed them. Not just forgiven us. Hey, done. Turn the blind eye. Turn the blind eye. Legally, you're forgiven. You're free. But you still carry a walk around with, yo, you know, I'm done. No, he said, cool. I'm not only just forgiving them. I'm truly removing them from you. The Bible says this, he erases the record of our debt. He erases the record of our debt. The judge, the man, the God who sees everything, says, I, the only one who sees it all, who knows the motivations of your hearts, he says, I'm erasing the record of your debt. And let me tell you about my God, he does not make mistakes. If God erases the record of your debt, he is not picking up a pen later, okay, hmm, let me see what I can add as you go along. So much so, the only time he picks up a pen, it tells us, he says that he writes our names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And can I tell you, when he erases our debt, he uses an eraser. And when he writes here, he uses a pen. The eraser and the pen never get mixed up. He's never going, oh, after I made a mistake with that person. <laughs> he makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. This is who God is. And I want to tell you this morning that the law was always conditional. I've been in meetings before where uh, somebody once years ago said, Let's do, we're going to do a Bible study today on the blessings of obedience. So they'll say, great. And then say, let's turn to Deuteronomy 30. And you say, if you, if you obey today, I will bless you in this way, this way, this way. If you do this, I'll do this. And I go, that's great. But then you have to keep reading where it says, on halfway through it says, but if you don't obey, I will curse you. You can't have one or the other. You can't read half a passage and say, I'll just take those. If you want to live under that thing that if you obey, then you have to take the curses off if you don't obey. And many Christians unfortunately live on that. But here's the good news for you and I. The law was conditional. If you obey, the new covenant is based not on better conditions. The Bible tells us the new covenant is based on better promises. The new covenant is not based on better conditions. Like if you obey, this is just an upgrade of the old. It says, no, no, better promises based on somebody else other than you. Not better, not more favorable conditions, but better promises. The scripture says this, those who trust me will never be put to shame. Galatians tells us there, chapter 2 says, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. I don't know if you've ever seen it on a coffee coffee cup. You said it to somebody you put on your Christian Twitter account, I no longer live, but Christ lives in within you. I've quoted it, and I know the times I've quoted were about me trying to conquer sin. Because I've messed up. I'll go, Jesus, no, I, I no longer live, it's but Christ who lives in with me, I'm stronger than my sin. It's not written in that context though. The context of Galatians 2, where that scripture appears, is saying that actually you have died to the law. You've died to the law, the conditions, the accuser, the thing that points out your faults. He says, 
you, you will ever be able to accomplish the law, just die. Just die to yourself and live in Christ. It's not me, it's Him. That's the whole point of Galatians chapter 2. It's not to give you strong the willpower. I don't live Christ in me. I don't live Christ in me. I'm saying teens out there, what's sin? No, he said actually die and then trust Jesus to live your life. It's a beautiful thing of the Gospels. Scriptures tell us as far as the east is from the west, he'll remove our sin from you. Let me do this very quickly. Claire, no, I have you up there. I need somebody else. Who else? Duran, you're, you're looking great there. Come on up. Claire, can you stand here? Or in the middle. You stand in the middle, Claire. Duran, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is person A. They're all the same person. Person one, fully forgiven. Fully justified. Forgiven your past, your present, your future. But this is the good news. He doesn't just leave you there. He comes and he says, actually, I haven't just fully justified you. He's actually comes and he takes off the cloak. He says, I'm actually removing your sin. Mm. Forgiven, but I'm removing it as well. You guys can stand there. Just smile, everyone. It's all very good. We weren't taking notes anyway, so it's fine. Third and final point, and we'll get to this now, is that God, finally, the third one, He fully justifies us, He freely justifies us, thirdly, He forever justifies us. Let me tell you this, the gospel is not God giving us temporary papers. What I mean by this, we've got a man in our church called Maurice, he's a Nigerian by birth, he's only here on a temporary visa, and this last weekend he had to go up all the way to Pretoria, stand in queues and queues and queues, get to the front, they go, we don't like Nigerians too much here, they say, we're going to give you one month temporary, see you in a month. Yeah. And he's like, I had to fly up here to do all this, to get my temporary papers all the way back, just so I can stay in the country. All the way back in the month's time, he's going to go up and try and appeal again, and will, hopefully something will happen. The best he can hope for is a year extension. I think too many Christians live with this understanding of God. That we live on temporary papers. And I've got to keep on re-appealing my case. I've got to keep on proving myself and going back. I hope I can get an extension. And hopefully that you're looking, uh, okay, you're trying hard. You're doing better than that person maybe. Can I tell you, this is the thing that actually, this sounds trust, but it's so huge. This is the thing that divides the church, when Martin Luther and the Reformation came and nailed his, reform, his thesis on what issue? Justification on the door of the Pope. Because what had happened in the church, the church had started to say, yes, faith is good. Nothing you understand. They always feed back into this. was years after the, the Galatian church and this. Said, faith is good, but just add some words to it and come in. If you, if you confess your sin to another man behind a little thing, then you'll be absolved of your sin. So what happens though, a group of people live under restriction and fear because every so often they have to go out and like, oh, if I hope I don't die before I do my next confession. Because if I do, then I'm out. That, is that fragile? And we start to motivate people with fear instead of the freedom that Jesus Christ has given us. This is what Romans 4 says. It says, to the one who does nothing. It's the Bible. It says this, to the one who does Nothing, but believes the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned, credited as righteousness. That's what Romans 4 says. To the one who does nothing, but just believes the one who justifies the ungodly, that person shall be declared righteous. You can imagine Jesus smiling at that person. And all others who've been working hard and saying, but, I, but I'll be proving myself. Sorry, bud. Not good enough. 
Because here's an amazing thing. What Jesus, what God does is He says, forgive Fully forgive your past, your present, your future. He says, you are freely justified. I've removed your sin. But here's the great news. He doesn't just leave us in a neutral state. My past, I've done. I'm clean. Good, I can move on here. Because implications with that with humanity is, I'm clean. What do I do now? I need to walk this thing out in my own ability. And can I tell you, you will stuff it up again and again and again. Can I be honest? I stuff it up again and again and again. But here's the great news of Jesus. I need one more person. Who's, Adrian, do you want to come and be our man? Is this what happens? Is he doesn't just put us in a neutral state. He actually puts us in credit. Just to be fully justified in the courtroom of heaven means that he comes and he puts his righteousness in us. He's removed. He has forgiven our sins. Forgiven. He actually removes our sin. And then he says, I'm not just going to leave you in that state. I'm going to put my righteousness in you. My nature. I'm going to credit my, what, is, what is said of Jesus. I'm going to be saying it of you. Yeah. This is mind-blowing stuff. Because this is an amazing thing. Jesus doesn't trust our ability to gain it. He says, I don't trust your ability to gain my free salvation. My freedom. I don't trust you. So I'm going to come and die for you. I'll do it. Don't worry. I've got this one covered. In the same way, he doesn't trust us to keep it. Yeah. He says that Paul asks, how did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive Jesus? And they go, by faith. He says, well, continue like that. Why move from, I received them by faith, but now I must do my own, I must try hard myself. Let me tell you this, Christ's work is finished. Finished. He's not on a go slow, he's on a holiday and waiting for a moment when he works again. He says, my work is done in the cross. There are no sacrifices for sins remaining. As I bring this into land, question I hope is on your lips. Does this mean that we won't sin? Does this mean that sin, our sin doesn't matter? Good question. Because if you're not asking that, then you're not preaching this well. What Paul is doing is he is reverse engineering our thought process because we always start with what does a Christian look like? How must a Christian act? And Paul is saying, no, no, reverse that process. He says, let me get show you the roots. If I can expose your roots, and if I can do work on your roots, he said your root system will always produce the right fruit. If you start to understand who you are in Jesus Christ, you'll start to produce what a son of Jesus Christ starts to look like. When you take a whole bunch of have-tos off people, do I have to do that? No. Can I tell you what happens? When you get the root systems in place, a whole bunch of want-tos start to leap up. Let me tell you this. I am a son. I was born in a family. And from day one, I was a Phillips. Nothing would disqualify me from that. But as I walked as a son, I had to learn to what it looked like to be a Phillips. The way I walked out was, actually I learned that's not how we act, that's, that's how I act, this is the habits of a Phillips family, this is the traits, this is how we tell our jokes, this is how we, we say something without being punched by all the brothers, this is how we live as a Phillips. But it wasn't, I didn't get a born in day one and they say, here's a class for you of how you're going to act as a Phillips. It was never a class, it was learning in the family of God, in my security, and it wasn't that it was never under a threat saying, and if you don't act like this, you're out. It was never under threat. It was under the conditions of a family. 
And here's the moment where I'll be building up to. I want to give you a confession. Is that right? Why did we come on this day? No, joking. I want to tell you, just last weekend, I was in a moment where somebody came and they accused me of something. They accused me of something, and I left, and I held my tongue, and I went home, didn't say anything to my wife, and I felt it was false. And that whole night, I tossed and turned, I couldn't sleep, but it wasn't to do with Olivia, I promise you, she's off the hook. It was this thing inside of me, and I was tossing and turning. And I'll tell you what I did the whole night. I, I let in, in and out of the cage. This is how real this is, this gospel. It's not just some out there thing. It has to do with our real life. I wrestled in the cage and I wrestled in the swamp. As my thoughts went around and around, I was working out the whole night a perfect argument. How I would go and tell this person why they were wrong. And actually start telling out them why. How dare they tell me that when I know stuff about them. I'm being honest. That's what I was doing. I was going, and this is a flawless argument. I had it down. And I'm going, yeah, after a while, I go, actually, actually, I don't care what they think of me. And I'd leap into the swamp. And I thought, well, if that's what they, you know, if that's what they say, stuff them anyway. I, I just want to talk, stuff them. And I'll do whatever I want. You don't know me. And I leapt from the swamp to the cage the whole night until I got to a moment where I actually woke up my wife. <coughs> She'll ask, and I said, Fee, I've let the enemy in. She had no context to bring it up to speed. And it seemed like a small thing. And as I said, it sounded so trite. But I realized that my heart had been hijacked. My freedom had been hijacked. Because actually in that moment, I was believing what they were saying about me. And in that moment, what I had to do, we had to pray. Fear, I prayed. The enemy had come and started to accuse who I was. And those words started accused. It's not out. Sometimes we think it's just out there that Satan's going to come and walk into our story. Hey, you. Oh, I recognize it. If he did that, we'll never listen. But it's in our thought life and the way we respond to people, our family members. And I have to actually pray these scriptures, these truths, that I'm fully your son, Jesus. I'm freely, that if there's, and, 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 and I'm forever yours. I'm so secure in who I am in you, so I get to respond differently. Doesn't mean I can get away with it. It means that my root system determines my free system is going to be different. Not cage, not swamp. It's going to be different. Thank you, Claire. You should stand behind me all day. <laughs> Let me tell you this. I want to ask these questions. If you want to know if this is in your heart, if you fully got this, and this is me on this journey as well, is what do you do when you mess up? When you sin? If you want to know, have I got this? Do I believe this? Is what do you do when you sin? Do you run from God? Or do you run to God? Do you run from community? Some of you are easy to read. Disappear for a few weeks back. Something's up. Something happened. But actually, I want to say, it's not because we go, there's no team listening, it's not about that, it's going, it just reveals that we actually feel, I need to step back for a while, so I prove myself again. Or I need, and maybe it doesn't sound that, we don't say it that coherently in our head, but it's a revealer of where, how we actually believe God. I know about myself, I would sin, and I'd spend days until I make promises again, God, I'll never do that again. I'm so sorry. Okay, cool, now I can walk with Jesus again. As if my ability to say sorry was guaranteeing my sonship. No, I've repented. He responded with his grace. And he said, I pour out my grace, I don't pull it back. Because I've justified you legally. It's written, it's sealed. Now the question is, what do you do when you're offended with somebody else? Well, now I had you battle with last week. Maybe it's all manifest in the silent treatment. I want to say that these things are not actually not saying that we must work on not doing the silent treatment, but they reveal that we actually say, actually, you need to prove yourself to me. 
And we meet people with a, a, a cage-like mentality instead of actually responding like a son and a daughter to them. This is how real this is, how tangible this is. Do we know that we are fully, free, and forever justified? I land with the story. I have to tell a story about my daughter. Olivia Grace. We have to bath her every now and again. Once every few days. Sometimes it's a heavy third or fourth day. But anyway, don't tell anyone. But um, when we bath this little girl, and she's so snug, she's so happy with life, she's just gurgling away, and we pick her up, and, and then she starts to have the water run, and then she starts to get undressed by us, and she's going to go, what are you going to do to me? I was so happy, I was so warm, I was so content, I was so safe. And, and suddenly she is nude and she's exposed and she feels cold and, and she feels vulnerable and her eyes go big and they look at me and it's like I feel so terrible. I'm like, I'm just about, I'm just bathing. <laughs> and, and her hands are going this and it's like, what's going on? And as I carry her to the water to bath her, there's pure panic in her eyes. She's like, what? You're, are you going to drown? Like, what is happening? And, and as we leave her and my hands are around her, one hand around her, one under the little thumb, very small thumb. And as I lower her down, and his hands go, and their hands grip, just hold on to your dad's shirt, and hold her little hand, grab her something. And it's terrifying, they go down, and tears coming down her eyes, and the bath, and eventually she calms down, holding on, and tear up, won't let go. She won't let go. And as I was seeing this one day, I just said to Fee, she thinks that she's staying afloat because she's holding on to me. She thinks that she is keeping this thing going by her firmness of her grip. Not knowing that and what if I let go at any moment, she's gone. But actually, I'm holding her. I'm holding her. And as I saw this, I just felt my heart that I do that too often. I feel, I've got this, God. And when I feel exposed and when I feel embarrassed, when I feel naked, when I feel ashamed, what I do is I cling on to something. Either it's a cage or it's a sin or something or it's an attitude or silent treatment to try and bring control to my life. When God says, trust my heart. That are fully, freely, and forever justified you. The papers are there. You're legally mine. Now I want to put this confidence in us because I believe that secure people change the world. Insecure people peddle religion. Secure people point to a savior. It's not me. It's not I who live. Christ in me. I pray this goes deep inside of us and will affect the way we live, the way we relate, the way we embrace family, the way we embrace challenges and not because we are in control.